Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... Romanes Domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It's the linguistic bedrock for much of the Western world... It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. What's Latin for Roman? But Latin is being unceremoniously abolished from the New Zealand curriculum. Aunt? What is aunt? Go! And yes, while it might be a dead language, it is still all around us, from law to medicine to zoology, theology, botany. Conjugate the verb to go. So aunt is... Third person plural, a present indicative. So, is it time to say goodbye to the mother of the Romance languages? Or is this a bit of a short-sighted move which fails to appreciate the nuances of a well-rounded education? Understand? Yes, sir. Now, write out under times. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Hail Caesar, sir. Hail Caesar. Classics teachers say they are bitterly disappointed, but not surprised by an announcement to drop classics from NCEA Level 1 and cut Latin from NCEA entirely. In a lot of ways, this move makes sense. Just 200 students take Latin for NCEA. At Level 3, that number drops to just 25. But that did not stop Latin-speaking New Zealand from heading into a tailspin. Salve, James. Salve. <laughs> Very good. Is that how many words of Latin is that you got? Just that one? Not many. <laughs> you've got more than you know. Not many. You, yeah. you, you've got more than you know. That's, that's going to be part of it. This is James Elliott, Newsroom's legal counsel, stand-up comedian, musician, and Latin tragic. Please feel free <laughs> yes. to point out, yes. for the first bit of this anyway, the times when we use words that have Latin roots in conversation. Okay, I'll try and put those in. Could be in. kind of fun. Yes, it could be, yeah. Let's start at the beginning of your Latin journey. How did you, how did you kick off? How did you, you studied at, at primary school, presumably? No, not primary school. No. I did it at secondary school. Okay. So, uh, 1978, secondary school, and Latin was an optional subject in third form. At that age, I was interested in languages. I'd done French at primary school and was carrying that through to secondary, and I think I just saw Latin as an adjunct uh, of... <laughs> Of that, yeah. uh, and that's why I did it. So I did it through from from um, third form through to school school certificate level. School certificate for those of us living in 2021 is the equivalent of NCEA level one. The text that I recall most was Caesar's Gallic Wars. So uh-huh. Julius Caesar, uh, before he became the the um, uh, the emperor, uh, went off and did all these wonderful military campaigns to to prove his sort of worth to the Roman Empire, uh, and so he wrote uh, obviously. A, in glowing terms of his own exploits. Mm-hmm. And so his Gallic Wars was a text that we worked off and trans- and be able to translate it into English. But a huge component of learning Latin is the grammar. Mm. So the, 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 the nouns and the verbs and the rote learning that goes with learning uh, all the how the no- nouns are declined like they are in Romance languages because the Romance languages come from Latin. Uh, and the verbs, uh, the tenses of the verbs, um, and so there's a lot of rote learning built around that. Well, you work now as a lawyer. Has it helped you? Does it help you? Well, I think it, I mean, it's certainly a familiarity. You don't need to understand necessarily the language. It's just probably more the idea that l- there are lots of concepts in law expressed in Latin, and you can simply understand what the concept means without needing to know the, uh, without needing to know the grammatical basis or go any further than that. You simply know the, the, the legal, the maxim. 
and what it stands for. So the most common ones that you would come across if you're a law student, I think there are probably two areas. And probably criminal law is probably the one uh-huh. that's probably most relevant for people. So the first thing you would learn in criminal law, and concept of a crime, is there's two things. There's the actus reus, uh-huh. the, the act itself, and then there's the mens rea, which is the guilt of the mind that goes with it. So that the concept of the crime is broken into two components, the act and the intent, uh-huh. if you like, put together. And that's very commonly spoken about that's that'll be spoken about within the court concept within a trial as well what was the act and what was the intent uh, but then there are other little components that you would you would understand that come through if you weren't present if your defense as a criminal defendant the defendant was that you weren't there at the crime then you have an say that again if you weren't there yeah. at the time the crime was committed yeah. you say you were elsewhere that's, I was I have an alibi you have an alibi Yes. There you go. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, all, we still use that word. Everyone Is knows that a Latin it. word? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you're going to put your hand up to uh, admitting something, either criminally or otherwise, uh-huh. you know, you're the guy that spilled the coffee and didn't clean it up, uh-huh. you'd call that a... Um, uh, confession. Yeah, mea culpa. Mea, mea culpa. Mea yeah. culpa, you'd yeah, say true. that. Yeah. You'd yeah. say that without it sort of stound, sounding sort of too sort Exactly. Of People toffee. would understand what People I mean. People would understand what you mean. So there's a lot that comes straight through from criminal law. Uh, in civil law, common law, non-criminal law, if you like, when you're a student, the, the bane of your existence for the first year is, is uh, being taught about legal reasoning. Mm. So the two things that you learn about as a law student are two concepts called the ratio decidendi, mm. still called that, will always be called that in the study of law. That's like the heart, what is the heart of the reasoning that must be followed versus what's called obita dicta, which is literally an aside, something else that's sort of said about the issue or about the principle or about the case that's not binding it's simply a, as you, as it were an observation mm. so uh, students have to try and learn what the difference between those two things been reading a, when reading a judgment if you like what's the sort of the core or the binding component of the reasoning versus something that's just an aside those terms convey so much meaning and sort of instinctive understanding once you're a lawyer that's no need to sort of translate or change them some people, you know, someone might be listening to this and think to themselves, this is part of the problem with law and with other high demand professional industries. Kind of like the wigs mm. is sort of, a, for many people, a barrier to overcome. It, that it is a thing that keeps things exclusive for people who can go to private school and learn about mm. Latin concepts. Almost a sort of a great dividing range, you know, like yes. a rocky mountain yes, to, keep, yes, yes. to keep law inaccessible to yes. people who might not have that kind yeah. of background. I mean, is there merit to that argument? Oh, I, well, I think it's one. If it happens, it's just more that it's happenstance more than anything else. Mm. So we've we've learned a subject and we've, uh, that's been created by the use of these terms, and it's not designed to keep people away or make those things inaccessible. It's simply the way that they're taught and simply the way that they're learned. Uh, and obviously, there's, you know, there's, there's a move to plain English in law as well. So there will be some of these terms that are not used and a, and a translated term would be um, used if it's in a sort of context where there are non-lawyers you know, present. You know, like you said with the Whigs. Well, what was the reasoning for the Whigs? Some people would say, sort of dryly, the reason for the Whigs is so that you can determine which is the lawyer and which is the criminal defendant. Mm-hmm. The guy with the wig is the lawyer. Obviously, <laughs> sometimes it's not entirely clear. That's why. But that's been broken down. So that you know, there are there. Are, you know, Whigs are no longer worn in the in a number of occasions that they used to be worn. And the same, the language is sort of broken down. Uh, as well, um, but you know there are some uh, uh, some components even in English in the law that are, that are um, really sort of archaic at times and do need breaking down. Uh, I remember being in court once when a person um, a defendant was appearing for acting for themselves without a lawyer, and they wanted to say something to the judge, 
and the judge said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And that didn't mean that he was hard of hearing. It meant that the person speaking didn't have a right to speak at that time. Mm. But the person didn't know that, so Naturally. their response was simply to speak louder <laughs> to the judge, which led the judge to say, as I said, I, you, know, it's, you know, you can't script this. It was just a beautiful moment in itself. I can't hear you. But, yes, um, yeah, I think in certain professional components, yeah, you can, you can translate these things and break them down. But because they have such a sense of lineage... Uh, you say, and for some, so the question is, you know, we can use terms that we've run a few that you you know as as, as a lay person, as a non-lawyer. Well, where do we draw? The, you know, how do we draw the line between what? Where is it between someone who knows these terms instinctively, and and somebody who doesn't? Does knowing Latin? I mean, does it make you feel clever? I, and I say that yeah, without yeah. judgment. No, no, because, no. no. You know, it, it, like, uh, look, I'm a bit of a word nerd. Yeah. So I love I love using as much colour in language as I can, whether it's written or otherwise. And, you know, constantly working on your vocabulary and your sense of meaning because all of us use far, you know, far smaller... So we each have a smaller lexicon than is available to us. Uh-huh. To me, it's it's not... I understand what you mean, sort of showing... It's just more about... Well, for me, it's just an enjoyment component. And then and there is an element of going, if you can bring something... Say, say someone's never heard of the concept of caveat emptor, mm. and you can bring that to someone, and they pick it, and they go, oh, that's really cool. So, and sometimes I think, um, you know, there's be something in Latin that is, you know, to take from the French, that is the mot juste, the perfect mm. word, yeah. or the perfect expression. It's really satisfying. Just at that time, yeah, and you yeah. go, that is exactly the term that I need to use in, in that instance. Which is all well and good, but, you know... Magicking up a semantically perfect phrase and having a working understanding of obscure legal dicta doesn't necessarily mean a subject should be taught at high school. Josh King is a PhD candidate at Victoria University. I asked him to explain the justification behind Latin being removed from the curriculum. I think there's two main reasons that have been given for the decision. The first is the fact that there are only a relatively small number of students that take Latin at NCEA in New Zealand. I think the numbers that the government gave were about 200 secondary school students across New Zealand taking NCEA Latin. And then there's another reasoning, and this is perhaps the reasoning that they're given for the overhaul of the NCEA curriculum more generally, because the, 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 the axing of Latin, I suppose, is only one part of a, of a bigger curriculum overhaul that's happening over the next couple of years. Other subjects to be dropped from level one include art, history, media studies and psychology. But um, the, the overall reasoning for that is that um, the government was worried about people taking what they considered to be too specialised subjects too early. They wanted people to have what they described as kind of like broad base sort of subjects in their first year or so of NCEA and then be able to move on to more specialised subjects uh, in their last couple of years of secondary school. So there's kind of two things going on there, I suppose, the the numbers of students and and the the sort of wider uh, concerns about the NCEA curriculum. Robert Griffiths wants to tell us why we should celebrate the learning of Latin and keep teaching it in our schools. Rob is the spokesperson for the Association of Classics Teachers. The ministry has reduced NCEA to pathways and claims that Latin is a dead-end subject. There is nothing about the joy of knowledge or the wonders of learning. No doubt the ministry imagines a world where engineering students will become engineers, dentistry students will become dentists. What will Latin students become? I'll tell you, they'll become the Crown Law Prosecutors, the Treasury Officials, 
the investigative journalists, the medical researchers, the university lecturers, the global entrepreneurs. Don't tell me that it's a dead end. You've written a great piece for Newsroom on this topic, and one of the many interesting points that you outline in this is maybe a fear that perspectives on education are becoming technocratic, maybe. Mm. You know, that the point of school is to prepare people for the workforce and therefore people are being encouraged very strongly to study subjects which give them practical knowledge to help them get a job. I mean, have I sort of paraphrased that accurately? Yeah, I think that's 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 kind of my primary concern with this is that, I mean, it's not like the be-all and end-all of the education system, but I definitely feel that there is an element of kind of linear progression um, expected from education increasingly. And that, that, that idea that, like, you know, you go to school and you learn things at school that will then enable you to either go directly out and get a job or go to university, where you then do a, gre- a degree that kind of leads uh, directly into a job, I guess. So I suppose the really obvious examples, you know, if you're looking in from outside, you can look at someone who studies science at school, who goes on to do a, a Bachelor of Science at university, and you leave university and you become a scientist. Or, you you know, you could say the same for someone who studies medicine or someone who studies law or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. These kind of subjects that lead directly into a job. And there are a whole swathe of subjects that aren't like that, I suppose, that, that things like Latin, and they tend to be humanities subjects in general, that perhaps don't lead so neat and tidily into a job. And as a result of that, I kind of feel that they are the ones that are constantly asked to make sacrifices and make cuts and um, all those sorts of things in the context of education being seen increasingly as preparation for the workforce, I guess. Why are the humanities important? I mean, there's kind of a lot of different reasons as far as I'm concerned. And obviously, you know, I'm now almost 10 years deep into a humanities education, so there's perhaps a slight tinge of bias here, but... (laughs) um, I would say that, like, okay, so you go and you study English literature or philosophy or history. Um, You might not necessarily leave school or leave university to become a philosopher or a historian or, you know, an English language professor or teacher or or a novel writer or something like that. But um, there are a whole bunch of, um, I mean, some people call them kind of like soft skills, you know, that go along with a humanities education that I don't think you can really get anywhere else. Um, I suppose the key one that gets um, pointed to on a regular basis is that sort of core component of critical thinking. You know, we're being presented with information all the time um, in any aspect of, of our day-to-day lives, and the ability to kind of process that information, digest it, think about what it means for you and what it means for sort of society at large, uh, and kind of figure out like how you're going to respond to that. Those are all the kind of aspects of critical thinking that I think any subject in humanities probably teaches you. But also... I mean, at a much more practical level, I guess, these are subjects that tend to favour grammar, language, the written word, um, you know, sentence structure, all those kinds of things. And I don't think that there are very many circumstances in everyday life where at some point you're not going to have to put together a, a string of words to communicate with someone either verbally or, you know, in a written form. And so, you know, Humanities definitely contributes to be, you being able to do that in, in a much more sort of clear and concise way, I think. The thing that we're talking about really here, and it is kind of a highfalutin, noble kind of question here, is what is the point of education? What areas of knowledge are useful? And what yeah. does the word useful kind of mean? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's something that is kind of lying at the core of the issue that I have, I suppose, is that, and this goes back to the thing that we were just talking about before, is that when you're looking in from outside, there are things that sort of very obviously seem to be useful, and they tend to err more on the side of those practical educations towards science and technology and and mathematics and, and all those kinds of things, engineering and whatnot. And there are things that people looking in from outside perhaps perceive to be less practical, i.e., you know, the study of English literature or learning Latin or anything like that. But how do we choose to value education? Do we sort of only hold up those things that sort of fall nicely into a linear progression from education to career? Or do we choose to accept that sometimes, you know, something might not necessarily have a sort of career with a neat bow tied around it lying at the end, but at the same time it does still give you things of real value that are going to directly contribute to what you choose to do with the rest of your life. And I think humanities has many things to offer in that respect just because you might not necessarily have a job with exactly the same title as the degree you did at the end of it doesn't necessarily mean that it was um, invaluable or anything like that. But I guess the thing is that people who have to make decisions around curriculum have to make those decisions. And, you know, the, the humanities might have a lot to offer, but if only 200 students are taking you up on that offer, 25 students, I think it is, at level three, you know, mm. it's hard to justify keeping it in the curriculum with numbers like that, isn't it? I mean, I definitely think that's true, and they probably wouldn't have made this decision if there were, you know, tens of thousands of students studying it across the board. But at the same time, if there are students that want to do it, and there are teachers that we have in our secondary schools that are trained and capable of teaching it, I kind of don't see why those students should not have the opportunity if the sort of interest and the resources are there. I mean, even if it is only a small number of students, those small number of students are interested in that subject and they're kind of being denied it as far as I'm concerned. So, yes, I, I completely understand those people that say it's only 200 students. Why does it matter? But. It is 200 people that have had a choice that they perhaps wanted to take taken away from them. And it is a whole bunch of teachers who, I guess, unless they can sort of move off to studying some, uh, teaching something like classics or, or, or something like that, presumably those Latin teachers might be out of a job. I don't know. But um, there's a small number involved, but I don't necessarily think that that means that those people don't matter. I put this statement to you. I would like you to defend yourself against it. The sure. only reason people, people like you who mm -hmm. are fighting for Latin are doing so is because Latin has always been taught and you are simply curmudgeonly and terrified of change and there is nothing special about Latin. Nobody is agitating for ancient Greek to be added to the curriculum. This is simply intellectuals not accepting that the world is moving on. Yeah, I mean, that might equally be a valid point as well. Um, but I think that... Um, there are aspects of that education that, yeah, sure, they've been around forever, but like we've been talking about really for the last wee while, they do teach you valuable things, um, even if you're not necessarily going out into a world in which you're going to be using Latin on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, people can probably, you know, criticize me for that respect if you like, but um, I equally don't think that just because they've been around forever, I want them to stay around in exactly the same way forever as well. I mean, there are very real um, criticisms that people have, and these are some of the things that I've heard in response to the article that I wrote in the, in the, in the um, interview that I did on RNZ last week, that, you know, there's a lot of kind of baggage tied up with uh, learning Latin or learning classics about sort of like what is considered to be 
you know, the pinnacle of civilization and how we as Europeans kind of see ourselves as inheritors of that civilization. And, and that's had sort of really problematic consequences in, in colonial contexts and in sort of like uh, racial theory and things like that. And so, you know, there are aspects of it that probably are worth interrogating deeper and looking at how we might address those going forward. So I'm not necessarily saying that like, it's been around forever and I want it to just stay exactly the same forever. But there are skills there that are useful. There are people who want to study it and um, there are ways that we can kind of look at it and think about it that might make it sort of more uh, a fitting in a modern context, I suppose. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poak and produced by Alexi Russell. And thanks to James Elliott and Josh King. And yes, I know I didn't ding that bell every time a Latin root word came up. It was just getting really annoying. Matewa. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us?